Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. And welcome to this new episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. They do say that podcasts are like buses, that um, you, you wait for ages for one and then multiple of them come along at, uh, at the same time. Um, this podcast is coming out a bit quicker than we usually would do because this is a really, really topical uh, subject and I really want to get it out so everybody knows about it. We're going to be talking about um, sensory design and these are specifically linked to um, some workshops as well. So I want to bring in my guest who is Alistair Somerville. Alistair, welcome. Thank you, Barry. Hi. Um, now, bit bit of a, a confession. Ali's somebody that I've been wanting to interview for for quite a long time, ever since we met actually at a at, at, at a, at a um, home education um, event many years ago in Gloucestershire, and we sat, sat chatting to each other, and suddenly we decided we realised that we both kind of do the same thing. Uh, we just call it different things. Um, Alice is very much more on the on the UX side of life, where I'm on the on the human factors um, side of life, but. Um, are you actually, if you look at your job title on LinkedIn, you call yourself a sensory design consultant. I was wondering if you could just give us a bit of an insight into what sensory, what a sensory design consultant is. Sure. Um, a sensory design consultant is really trying to talk about how we're designing multimodally. I'm not getting trapped by the idea of we're designing um, for vision alone, but also not getting trapped by the idea that we're designing for a single sense, i.e. talking about how do we design across the human perception, and also how do we design through the depth of human cognition. Um, so it's, it's an idea that we need to sort of move into whichever is the best um, mixture of senses for achieving the the purpose that the the user has. So, surely that's quite simple then, because um, historically we've got sort of five senses. Is it not that simple? It's not that simple in terms of. I mean, I mean, currently I work on about practically speaking about nine senses is about where I am at the moment, um, but. The other issue is really quite how much the change in um, ideas around embodied cognition have changed the way in which we think about how are human beings processing um, the information and also the ideas coming out of sort of the more uh, visceral um, research about how much the cognition isn't in the brain, but it's actually spread through the body, through the um, interoception systems I, inside of ourselves. And this shifts some of the ways in which we talk and some of the ways in which we work, because it's not merely just about the senses of the person. It's the person, their body in the place in that time with those people. And that's that's much broader than just saying it's just the sensory sort of delimit of the touch, the feel, the smell, the sight, the hearing. This is going to um, give us a real insight in a, in a few moments. So, so we'll, we will dive more into this in, um, in in a couple of minutes because it sounds absolutely fascinating. But how did you get into that? How, so how, how have you got into the sensory design? What's been your sort of um, career path? 
Um, my career path is extraordinarily messy. Um, but in terms of where I, how I got to here, uh, in about 2008 or so, I started up a three-dimensional scanning and printing um, business for museums, I, for cultural organizations, where we okay. were replicating objects in 3D. But what became clear was actually it wasn't the making of the object, either three-dimensional replication, which was of interest. It was the manipulation of the data files and the data sets into different formats to provide information in different ways. And particularly, you know, my specialization is tactile maps and tactile um, design um, for blind people. And the ways in which we could manipulate texture and form in 3D for providing information in ways which was useful to blind people, even though the objects were visually completely and radically different from what they would look like um, for people with vision or what the original object was. So a lot of that drew into the idea that it wasn't about the senses, it was about the perception. And that's that drew me sideways into sensory design in the sense that the issues of the design for different forms of sensory capacity and the different forms of, particularly nowadays, cognitive capacity means that you have to, you have to talk about all the senses, all the perception. And that's, that's how I came to where I am now. Wow. So it's, it's really been um, a journey of evolution in many ways um, to, to bring you to this point. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing leads to another. One problem set leads to another research set, which leads to another problem set, which never leads to another research set. So you, you, you run your own consultancy, of which I will make sure all the links, um, firstly to your LinkedIn and to the, um, uh, to, to the company website um, in the um, program description. But how does a client know that they need to engage and engage you and, and, and engage it in some, in, in, I guess, in this breadth? A majority of my clients, the majority of people I come across come via the more sort of commonly known area of accessibility. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people come to me via accessibility work, but or the, the title. Yeah. Um, however, the reason I don't talk about accessibility is accessibility has an awful habit of um, othering people i it becomes you know this is about this person with this impaired type of sense they are not like me in terms of and and sensory design is sort of much more trying to sort of flip that around in the sense that it's we all have senses they work slightly differently our perception uses them slightly differently but we all have senses so i i, I try to sort of move away from the negative um concepts that sometimes accessibility has but that's where it comes in i also draw in a number of clients via the fact that um particularly in the workshop work that I'm I'm well known for sort of getting workshops which people enjoy um, and from a lot of work nowadays comes out of VR where a lot of the discussions are about how does embodiment and perception work yeah yeah I mean I, I was going to say I mean that's one of the reasons I've been wanting to talk to you for quite a while and we, we will go into it um, um, in, in the next section around the delivery of workshops because I was um I was quite privileged to attend just one of the presentations you gave quite a, a while ago talking about um, sensory and perception and things. And 
and it was one of these things that sometimes you you can go to certain workshops presentations and you know maybe doze off be checking your phone and that type of thing but the the way that you engage is is really quite um, quite something else um and it makes it interesting and engaging um so yeah no i, I think that that's um uh, that, that's really cool um so obviously we've um, had this small thing for the called the pandemic for the um for the past what 18 months or so um how have you been coping with that how, how have you um, have you got on either have you learned anything about yourself um through this period in terms of sort of the i mean yes it's led to quite radical changes in terms of sort of the inability to go out and do work um, with people but but it's also led to a lot of sort of uh, reconsideration of the way in which the work that i do um can be reformatted or reused in different um, ways. So, you know, particularly the the very first sort of quarter, the three months after it um, things started, was was extremely quiet for me. And in many ways, that was deliberate because I was just trying to work out how does one change from the idea of you know doing a lot of work which is very much about the physicality of work and design and also workshops which are very much about the the visceral communal experience to being on zoom or being on you know whichever format so yeah, yeah. so a lot of that um led to changes which which have been implemented sort of since then. So, you know, my style of presentation, the way in which I think about work has, has changed quite a lot. Cool. Uh, the, um, have you been able to reflect anything on um, about your, I guess, your own abilities or your own um, capability in, in this, this respect? I mean, I know that I've been trying to lead teams, um, almost like I said, from my own desk, my own front room. And it certainly had to bring in for me a whole lot of different skills of leadership and engagement that um, that I maybe that I hadn't really thought of before. Has there been anything like that for you, or is it uh, have you been um, able to just drive forward? I, uh, I don't manage people directly, so therefore I don't have those issues. I think I, I've changed a lot in terms of the way in which I talk about um, psychological safety and the way in which I talk about how do we. Um, how do we talk about things much more explicitly in a sense that Zoom and at a distance means that there, there's certain subtleties are being lost, which need to be which need to be not just left alone in terms of just letting them drift, but actually making some certain specific things to do with how do we talk and relate to each other much more explicit um, to be able to make sure that things are being covered. Yeah, no, I, I, that's been one of the um, the major. I mean, I think the, some of the things that we've been missing is just the ability to have a chat. Um, meetings for me, uh, were, and, and and you know, engagement in that respect, you have you might have a formal meeting, but before and afterwards, you'd, you'd have a brew um, and engage with the people that you're talking with beforehand, the small talk and that that type of thing. And we just don't seem to have that anymore, um, unless you actually build it in. Um, and it's yeah, I think it's been really interesting. The dynamic about how we use this remote stuff has been really interesting. Um, right, we're going to have a quick, uh, very quick break, and then we're going to come back into looking at the, the sensory design in more, more detail. So don't go away. You are listening to twelve oh two, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. 
You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. Cool. So we started talking about sensor design. And how do you... Um, how do you embed sensor design almost as a, as a, is it a process thing? Do you have a sort of a process or a, a set of rails that you use to, to, to engage, engage it? Or are you bought in as, um, I guess, as a, a part of somebody else's process? I'm generally brought in um, to assist or to provide quite small amounts of guidance in terms of nudging people through their projects or nudging their people through their product service development to help them understand some quite specific issues where where i normally turn up in projects is what i prefer is to turn up early mm. um, so as to stop people from going down routes which will lead to uh, errors much later in their development however in a lot of projects i do turn up quite late in their projects in terms of trying to mitigate or adjust something that's gone terribly wrong already okay. um, so the in terms of process preferable process for me is to come in early and actually engage with sort of users or possible users of the product service in order to be able to understand their um and i think this is where i differ from a number of people in order to understand capacities rather than impairments and it's it's being able to spot what's the capacity of a person and how they're using their capacity differently due to physical or cognitive impairment um, that matters to me so that then we can guide the project into aligning with the capacities of the humans that they're actually interacting with um, a lot of design has a habit of designing for the impairment not the person that's really interesting so i guess that means that you've got to um understand such a breadth of people as well because not whilst not everybody has exactly the same impairment that also must mean that not, not everybody's got the same 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 ability either so how, how do you how do you bring all that together i mean in terms of the work i'm i mean i have to say and this is probably where i do different from um human factors in some senses is i'm probably more qualitative mm -hmm. um in terms of my approach to things i mean i do know quant data in terms of um inclusive design guidelines and all the rest yeah. of it however i'm more interested in both talking to people and observing people's um, interactions and conversations about their, their use of their uh, capacities because these are the ways in which we can talk about how we create the adjustability of the product or service i you know we we look to see what what boundaries that we can we can think about um, in in the design because I mean this sort of I mean this this comes out of a lot of the way in which my work between wayfinding and cognition sort of sort of swap over okay. having some form of boundary in the design um, some form of constraint is necessary in order to be able to get anywhere in the design but it's making sure the boundaries and the constraints aren't actually placing some people over the other side and you know that particularly one of my the my 
um, things I loathe is the idea that there are users who are um, non-standard or right. not normal. Yeah. The idea of normal is extraordinarily problematic to me um, in terms of <laughs> the idea of the edge user. The edge user is an awful concept because it basically is a is saying that from our perspective, and it means that you as designers are choosing a specific perspective um, about what normal is, and that's never a good idea. Um, so... So my approach is understanding capacity, understanding the people, and then then very slowly approaching the technology or the service in order that we're not actually focusing on trying to fit people to the products or service, but actually fit the products or service to the people. So you start with the humans. Yeah, I mean, the way that you describe that is, is really interesting because, as you say, I mean, um, human factors in itself is you know human-centered design is, is supposed to be very very human focused but i do know say in the defense world that i work in that um if you're looking at the anthropometrics or whatever of people you 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 have the the full range of people and you take the the big wedge in the middle um and so there are going to people drop off at either end and i'm as guilty of that as the um as the next person i think and i think to have the way that you phrase that actually puts that into a very different context but you, I, I like the the way that you describe normal as well. I think if, if somebody ever describes me as normal, I sort of take that as a bit of an insult. I think normal's a bit boring. Um, but the the other thing that you mentioned there was about wayfinding. That might not be a term that um, that most people are generally um, used to. So could you describe a bit about what wayfinding is, please? Uh, yes. So wayfinding is helping people get from where they are to where they want to be, and in many ways people think it's it's making maps is is generally viewed as that's wayfinding but it's right. it's much broader than that in the sense of it's about talking about the totality of a system of guidance which may include maps but also includes signs training of people technologies all of these things you know the way in which the mobile technologies interact and all of these things are all to do with wayfinding but one of the things which also is important when talking about wayfinding in the way that the neuroscience of wayfinding, which which is something I I watch deeply, um, is that a lot of the way in which we guide ourselves through physical environments is true of how we guide our way through digital environments. And the way in which we also guide ourselves through learning. The way okay. in which we learn, the way in which we understand things is also based upon cognitive maps, based upon cognitive wayfinding. So all of these things sort of crisscross over each other. And and at the heart of it is is wayfinding theory. Okay. The um, So can, can you give us a, um, a practical example about where you've um, supported a project through wayfinding? Sure. So... I mean, we create a lot of maps um, for different heritage organizations. We're just coming out of a project in York, which will be installing sometime in the next few months, uh, for one of the uh, medieval castle in York. And particularly the work we've been doing is we were brought in mostly just to the tactile design work for a map which was going to be installed outside of the castle um the keep uh, but we've we've extended it because 
one of the things I've been changing and trying to get clients to understand is that just having one big map on site um, at the entrance is not helpful wayfinding and that, that they need to be able to present the information in depth across the totality of the user's journey. So we've also created little tactile maps which can be our postcard size that can be sent to people before they come, which are highly simplified but are giving a sort of sense of orientation before arrival. So a lot of this comes down to the idea that cognitive maps need to be set up with boundaries and then you provide more and more detail which infills into it so sort of neuroscience of, sort of the way in which cognition works so we've built things that are possible to use beforehand the map which is on site and then much more detailed maps of the interior for very specific parts and then over all of that, there's also QR links to audio guides, which then provide detail. So it's it's a way in which we talk about how do you create a sense of the total journey um, rather than just a single map, and how do you balance the cognitive load and create a cognitive journey for a person so that they can begin to understand whether the thing is relevant to them, begin to have a sort of baseline map of the area, and then you add detail aligned with their desire to have the detail. Because, of course, a lot of this comes down to you need to align the emotional requests, the emotional demands of the person with the actual information provision. And this comes to, and as you said at the beginning, a lot of, you know, we met because of home education. A lot of my theories come out of uh, a lot of the work in self-directed learning, mm -hmm. which which home education uses. And this this is the, how do we actually provide information from our side as designers or as organizations, but align it with the individual's cognition and uh, emotional interests. So that's got to be um, really intensive because the, the, that, that knowledge generation piece where you've, where you've got to understand what the user's journey is going to be and, and how to support it, that's going to be um, A, substantial, but also be really interesting as well because everybody's, as we said with the um, with sensory side of things, everybody's wants and needs are going to be slightly different. Um, so, but that's going to be quite good fun to do. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's it's also, and I think it changed quite heavily for me in probably about five years ago when I was doing some work in London for the Imperial War Museum. And it became very clear that the way in which they designed the new exhibit and also the what information they were requesting from us um, for the mapping they were ignoring that actually there was quite a serious problem with um, design for autistic people um, in okay. the sense that the, the environment they were creating was um, in sensory terms quite difficult. Um, and that sort of area of how do we how do we actually talk about, and this was stretched also with some work in dementia, uh, how do we talk about um, anticipation and anxiety those those sort of the, the loop between how do we you know and, and human beings are very much sort of leaning into the future yeah. how do we actually help people have positive anticipation and minimize their anxiety about what happens next 
where do I, you know, the next step, the next moment is really important nowadays. And that's that actually comes up quite a lot in the virtual reality work and other parts of work where how do we actually... I mean, you know, I've had many conversations about this sort of anxiety, i.e. why people don't go to a place, why people don't take the next step. Okay. Because that's that's actually the thing which we we need to design around. How do we actually enable people to to go out? You know, loneliness work, we came across a lot of people don't go out because of a specific anxiety issues. And right. that sort of, those areas are really interesting. I was going to say, I mean, just before we go into the next bit, the I've always had this idea about when you go to meetings, businesses, or whatever, that actually the hard one of the hardest things to do is to actually walk in the front door because it doesn't look either appealing, inviting, or even accessible. Um, the certain meetings, um, community meetings, for example, if you hold them in a certain place, they just don't look... The When, when I've talked to people about why they didn't come to the meeting, they're like, well, the, the, the door just wasn't... Didn't, the door wasn't open, um, and I guess that leads into a very, in a very small way, into into what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, there was one of the books which I read while trying to reconsider how to design workshops and things last um, last year was The Art of Gathering, uh, which is a very good book on on talking about how do we how do we talk better about how we invite people to meet us or to talk with us. And a, a lot of that is is about this idea of we have particularly certain sort of organizations and certain groups have a very specific way in which we present ourselves to other people, which actually we think is being um, polite and professional and showing, you know, good etiquette. But actually every single one of those things is actually a barrier to somebody else coming in and actually meeting us. So, you know, rather like the edge user discussion and normal, the way in which we talk and the way in which we design is actually building the walls to ensure that the diversity and inclusion doesn't happen. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll put a link to that book on the, um, on the description as well. So you've mentioned the workshops and things now. Um, that is, another, that, as you said, being that's a huge chunk of your work. Could you give us a bit of an overview about what sort of workshops you run and what you do? Um, yeah, so workshop-wise, the in order to be able to do anything with the sensory um, design work, I have to run workshops inherent in um, the work in the sense that we need to work with people with differing um, cognition and um, physical impairments to be able to understand the problem space. However, I also found it useful to provide the workshops to professionals, i.e. people within government or within the UX service design industries in particular, in terms of helping them understand their own sensory capacities in order that they have a much more broad idea of how to interact with people with differing capacities. I, this, this is at a fundamental level is if I can get you to understand the diversity and divergence of your own personal sensory and perception capacities, you are more likely to be open to the differences in other people's um, sensory and perception capacities. Um, so sensory UX workshops came out of that, and that that was those workshops were very successful in terms of developing um, particularly 
work in large international conferences. And all of them are designed around you know, having very particularly, I am, I am very much a person who facilitates quite visceral sort of, you know, physical experiences because I, I can't, I can't get people to understand embodiment and, you know, design for perception without making them use embodiment and visceral experiences. <laughs> um, you know, you can't do it by PowerPoint. Yeah. Um, you have to actually put people in situations, you know, put people with physical objects and, you know, communal experiences to order understand the thing that we're talking about. Um, which, of course, means that facilitation-wise, I, I have to have adjusted my techniques quite heavily because I have to be making sure that um, people aren't being distressed by the workshops you know the, okay, there's, yeah. uh, there's a there's a lot of issues to do with psychological safety which which come up in this stuff which which you know i've i've learned and you know that's one of the reasons i i watch and read quite a lot of the stuff on these issues um but over time having done sort of sensory ux i then moved through i i, I use the workshops mostly to follow my research interests because okay. i i work on the basis that I create workshops which are useful for people to understand a problem. Um, so when talking about augmented reality and virtual reality and information architecture, it was much easier to actually create workshops for information architects so that we can actually try and understand it better together. Um, so I, I, so a lot of the subjects I've dealt with in workshops, and I, 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 do, I do a lot of workshops on a lot of radically different um, issues you know i've done transcendental design um i've done hope as a concept all of these things is is not because i'm specifically an expert in these things but i am capable of creating a bounded inf space in terms of a workshop with a certain amount of information and then working with people and using the intelligence of the room and using the intelligence of the people to create new experiences and new ideas. So I've seen pictures of some of the workshops you run where you do, you know, you, you blindfold people, you give people um, objects and things like that. Um, how do you find people um, are receptive to, to that type of thing? Is it a case of the, you know, people, people who come to your workshops know what to expect? Or do you, as you, as you said before about looking after their psychological well-being, how do you do that to begin with? I think I'm relatively clear, and I think going back to the art of gathering thing, I think I am much more explicit and much clearer about what's going to happen than than I was about six or seven years ago in terms of I want people to understand what they're about to go through. Um, however, I do still leave a certain amount of gaps in the way in which I talk to people because there's certain amount of... The, the, Sometimes I find people will avoid going into a workshop because they think it's not relevant to them. Um, I've found that when you know I've worked with Google and people, where where you find that certain groups of um, software developers or people who work in hard data don't want to go near stuff which seems like soft yes. um, information. Uh, however 
so therefore I, I, I have to vaguely manipulate how much I tell people in order to make sure I don't scare certain groups of people off. Right. Who okay. would, you know, who would benefit from the knowledge, but but they avoid certain things because they think it's too difficult or too messy or, you know, whichever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, obviously, you've got quite a... This is a quite a, a, a significant part of the work you do because you've been literally all around the world doing this now. How did you start this as a was it this is almost as a as that arm of your your business your arm of your capability um is it was it accidental or was it or was it was it a plan or i oh, know it's pretty accidental most of my career is um <laughs> the i think where where it was was about must be 2016 i happened to notice there was a local event well local to me um ux bristol uh, had an open invite out for uh, one-hour workshops and i'd never actually run a workshop up to, well in terms of a sort of education workshop before then um however i was just interested in the and this was at sort of possibly the peak of the sort of wearables they're coming what are they going to do kind of thing and i was just interested in sort of trying to present a workshop which was trying to say wearables aren't just about screens on wrists you know we need to talk about something more than that and we need to talk about multimodal so i designed a very small workshop which was basically just to scare the crap out of people <laughs> in, in in a sensory terms of just trying to make sure that they understood that vision alone wasn't the way in which we take information in and this is ux which is for the most part uh, user experiences is web design as was yeah, yeah. Um, and and so i did that workshop and it went very well and then it was known you know to other conferences in the uk picked up on it and then they sort of offered i mean this again this is getting into this you you're you're working for travel expenses only yeah yeah, um, yeah. but but it you know and so i did a few workshops which were travel expense only and got that and then because of the way in which conference organizers watch each other's conference agendas um it was clear that it my name and some things were being picked up so then i started doing american conferences uh, american conferences you know then australia and then so forth and so forth and then sort of through europe and all the rest of it so and then as as you're more known then then the ability to actually charge the workshop um at a sort of you know commercial rate yeah. stuff comes up and then that leads to uh work with private stroke sort of government work yeah. Um, so that's that's how it really went. But it, it starts small in doing doing one hour for a small local people, you know. So you, that's really inspiring. You just basically had a, a thought and idea and just basically ran with it to see to see what happened, and then it's it's evolved and developed as you, and you've refined it as you've gone. Yeah, and and you know that's why you know I've got you know of of the things I you know do i've i've done workshops for people to be able to write their own talks and create their own workshops because it is about just having the confidence to take the first step yeah and you know i've hopefully doing a conference workshop for free on i think 24th september for designing your own workshop well hybrid workshop because yeah i'm i'm 
I fell into this sort of by accident by, you know, just trying it. And, you know, other people should should try it too. Um, the more voices, the more ideas, the more experiences we hear, it's better for all of us. I couldn't agree more. I mean, fundamentally, that's why I started this podcast was because I just wanted to give it a go and see whether we could do something. Um, obviously, now with COVID, um, workshops are not what they used to be. Um, how have you um, evolved and developed during um, COVID and what do your workshops look like now? Yeah, I so I, I took about three months off in terms of trying to even vaguely work out what the hell I could do um, <laughs> when COVID happened because, yeah, my all of my facilitation skill and all of my design skill is based around designing quite visceral emotional physical experiences for you know three hours or more where we have a community of people together working um, on on problems mm -hmm. and therefore almost everything about the way in which zoom and all of these other things were presented was utterly flat and utterly um unusable as far as I was concerned for my purposes, let alone sort of, you know, from a psychological safety area that I was deeply worried very early on that sitting in front of a screen and a camera for hours and hours and hours watching PowerPoint or watching a talking head was not going to be good mm -hmm. for um, the way in which people could learn or the way in which people could interact. So I ran a series of workshops last year, probably in about, I think it must have been June, on dissent um, and theories of dissent in terms of how to, um, rather than looking at resilience, I look at rebellion um, <laughs> okay. in terms of organizations and the dissent workshops were based around that. But they were mostly me testing how to, how to think about how to design workshops and design um, assets around the workshops which would work in ways which would minimize stress and maximize learning and and it was how do we talk about asynchronous and synchronous time how do we talk about you know the purely digital zoom encounter meeting but also other social other ways of interacting with people and how do we change the information load and again it comes back to wayfinding how do we actually spread the creation of a cognitive map over time and over the um, capacity of the person's, you know, yeah. ability to learn and ability to have time to learn. How did you find delivering them um, them workshops last year? And I sort of come, come at it from a slightly selfish perspective. I did give a, um, a webinar on, on usability UX and that type, that type of thing as part of a, um, a, a whale-centric event. And in some ways, because the facilitation wasn't there for people to be able to chat and engage and all that sort of stuff, I found it really difficult because you were just talking to a screen. There was, and I, it wasn't till that point I truly realised how much I really needed the uh, the energy from the people you present to, or even just them subliminal cues of people nodding, people shaking the head, people scratching the nose, you know, to work out how connected people were. How did you find it doing that? And um, did you find it difficult or did you find it easy? Or I think it's it, it, it depends. I mean, 
a lot of i mean not being in the room not being able to sense the energy in the room is is disturbing for me um however the way in which i facilitate and the way in which i was trained to facilitate is very much that i create a safe space i set out a layered approach to how do we talk about and how do we investigate certain issues or problems and then it's the groups themselves which should be working on it so i'm i'm very much hands-off in terms of um, letting people have a space to be able to work so the fact that i'm not receiving feedback as i talk isn't that important to me and also i never expect to be in the conversations of the groups i always i you know that's not my role i my role is to enable people to meet each other and then share knowledge with each other so you know the use of zoom rooms and all of these other things are is is, is fine by me i i don't want to be in the zoom room with the participants i want them to have time together that's the thing i view as most important in workshops um so there is there is a lot of difficulty um but i think and that's that's where a lot of the sort of my consideration and you know i did analyze the workshops i did last year to see where where the stresses appear to be and where where i could um rebalance things but it's in many ways it's how do you maximize the social encounter mm -hmm. between people uh, who want to be there who want to be in the workshop because that's the thing i always view as most valuable so your latest version of uh, or this year's version of um, workshops is workshop on a card mm -hmm. could you tell us a bit more about that and, and what makes this different yeah so what came out of a number of workshops, sort of Descent and Hope and a number of other workshops I ran last year, was how to actually create a pathway of learning which was respecting the fact that a lot of people are under stress and a lot of people have time which is being twisted in weird ways because you know work at home and all the rest of it means that sort of the working day has become a slightly weird thing um so i wanted to make sure that we could present the information in a way that enabled a person to be able to um, use it in ways that was you know aligned with their life and aligned with their capacity to concentrate so last year i was sending out um booklets in pdf format to go with the workshops to help people sort of have something to read before they came and you know this comes to the wayfinding issue of you know provide people information so they actually understand the journey they're about to take um this year i felt it was better to actually physically create cards which have the content in sort of you know three or four simple sort of headline terms on the front of the card and then the card actually contains ways in which you can make notes write down your experiences talk about you know think about things so that it actually creates its own notebook so that when you come through 
to the next stage, which is that there are podcasts to go with each of the, the workshops. So about sort of 18, 20-minute um, podcasts have been created, which then allow me to be able to present the de information which is on the card in more detail and link it to uh, books or research or you know projects I've worked on okay. um, to be able to then allow you to sort of choose when to listen so you can listen to the kitchen you can listen to when you're walking so again not making people have to be at a certain time in a certain space okay. you know letting people have the card have the podcast so they can learn when they feel they can you know they feel it's best and finally that the podcasts then have within it instructions for uh, a couple of activities in terms of an action to take or an observation practice to take, which then feeds into the final part, which is one-hour Zoom meetings, which is so that people can then spend time with each other, talking about the whole of the, the experience, asking me any specific questions that they have, but mostly being with each other, talking about these experiences they've had during the workshop around the content, around the themes, around the issues, and then thinking about taking specific actions um, into the future. So it's it's about how do we how do we design for synchronous and asynchronous and how do we design for a much more self-directed sense of um, learning rather than the idea of you're here for a three hour workshop, we're in a room together. Because it, that doesn't exist. So how yes. do I change? And the cards, the podcasts, the Zoom is is how I'm doing it. So it's 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 all about trying to use different forms of design and different forms of sensory experience to engage people and also, you know, as I say, balance anticipation and anxiety. That's a really insightful way of putting it together. It's it that drive on get, basically preparing people as much as you can in order to make almost that end product be as valuable as possible um, or as rich as possible is that's really really quite cool um, are they so these these workshops they're, they're you've, you've, you've set specific topics for them yeah um, so it's um, I'm giving five uh, different um, subjects so okay. Two of them are on communication issues to do with active listening and to do with um, dissent. And three of them are on cognitive design uh, to do with wayfinding, um, to do with emotional design and to do with network thinking in terms of, sort of current theories of the neuroscience of memory and learning. Cool. So if I want to sign up to um, one or all of them, um, how, where, how do I go about doing that? The easiest way is on the acuity.design website. Um, and then it's the workshop and sort of go through to the workshops and then you'll find there's a workshop and a card page. Uh, you can either sign up um, for discounted. You can get five workshops for 125 quid or you can go to individual workshops if you're just interested in specific sort of areas and they're 30 pounds each. Cool. And they're happening fairly soon, aren't they? So when do they start? When does that thing kick off? They start on the 14th. So I'm running the workshop sort of basically Tuesdays and Thursdays from a sort of the 14th. 
but also at two different times, so 9 a.m. in the morning and 8 p.m. in the evening, which, which, again, from last year working on workshops, I found that 9 a.m. gives me the ability to talk to people who are having breakfast in the UK, have just started work in Europe, or are just getting home from work in Australia. <laughs> and 8 p.m. gets you people who are after work in UK and Europe and either sort of mid-afternoon or lunchtime in um, LA. Wow, the having to um, um, set out and really think about the time as you're doing to be able to reach that multinational audience, um, that's got to have been quite a challenge, but that seems to be, a, now the, the way you explain it, is an eminently sensible way to go. Um, Alistair, thank you very much for um, taking the time to uh, to talk to me about that, The it's especially at such short notice as well. Um, the I'll make sure all the details of how people can sign up to your courses and and that that type of thing are on um, are on the show description. But also you're very active on um, on sort of LinkedIn and that and that then uh, the different social media as well. So most people can find you on there and, and follow you and and listening uh, listen and see what the sort of things that you're up to. On the sort of final note, the one of the things that you did put up the other day, I thought, which I thought was interesting, was the a picture of um, what looked like a banis, um a railing on on the front. Uh, on, on the top of a wall that seemed to have braille embedded into it um which I, on the first uh, on the first bit of it just seemed to be wow so somebody's had the thought to put braille into that sort of thing but it wasn't until the you raised the point that actually the person would then need access to that entire rail um that actually it's it, it's any good um and there do seem to be um a lot of design things that are put together just to almost tick a box of and we call it looking at um, looking after people, but don't seem to deliver the function that they're actually truly made made to uh, made to deliver. And I guess the employing the the skills that uh, that you have early on in a project will hopefully um, negate the need for that sort of embarrassing outcome in many ways. Yes, I, you know, in all of design, you'll find that we are still very very much biased towards what looks good. Yes. Vision is still being prioritised in design in ways which is not helpful. Yes. No, it's, um, it is something that um, I know I'm, uh, I'm as guilty of as the next person. So hopefully um, I will um, give myself a good kick um, as much as trying. Hopefully this, this podcast will give other people a, um, a good kick and, um, and we can spread your message far and wide. Alistair, thank you very much for your time and I hope you have a great, uh, great rest of day. Thank you, Barry. It's been great. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.